Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. I am particularly excited to share this conversation with you today, as we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Robert Lustig. Dr. Lustig is a pediatric neuroendocrinologist and is Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He is also the Chief Science Officer of the nonprofit Eat Real which is dedicated to reversing childhood obesity and type 2 diabetes by bringing real food into schools. Not only is he incredibly well-respected in the space, but he has also written numerous books, and today we'll be discussing one of his latest, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. His stance on food as medicine and bringing awareness to the connection between our plate and health is something we're very aligned with here at Saqqara. So I'm excited to share his wisdom with you here today. Please welcome Dr. Lustig. We're so excited to have you here. The first question we like to ask our guests that come on the Sakara Life podcast is, what is your personal mission here on Earth? Well, I have to say it's changed over time. My personal mission started out being taking care of kids because kids are our future. And that's still part of my mission, but now I realize I have to take care of adults too. And ultimately, it turns out that taking care of kids and taking care of adults are actually pretty much the same thing at this point. And the reason is because kids now get the diseases of adults. So the whole thing has morphed into one basic big problem, and the problem is our food supply. So my mission is to fix the food supply so that we all, you know, as a society can experience appropriate, better metabolic health so that we can thrive. Can you talk to us about what you mean about fixing the food supply? Because one of my favorite quotes, I don't remember where I read this, if it was in your book or somewhere else, but you talked about the importance of understanding not just what's on your plate, but what was done to your food before it got to your plate. And I love that so much because we talk about that all the time here at Saqqara, but I love like just like the way you worded it. Like, you have to understand what was done to your food before it got to you. That's right. So in my book, Metabolical, which is behind me here, I basically make the argument that's not what's in the food. It's what's been done to the food that matters. All food is inherently good is what we do to the food that's not. Food is medicine until humans get done with it. Then it's poison. So the question is, how does food go from food to poison? 
you know, people are constantly throwing this new, you know, uh, meme around food as medicine. Well, yes and no. Because the question is, is ultra processed food, food? And there's an answer to that question. If you think Cheetos is food, all is lost. All right? Now, Cheetos has calories, but calories don't necessarily make something food. And that's the point of the argument. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about why is ultra processed food not food? Because then people will understand the difference between what you're talking about and what the food industry is talking about and how food can be medicine, but it can also be poison. So in order to understand this, we have to understand the definition of food. What's the definition of food? Well, if you go to the dictionary and you open it up, and I did, <laughs> here's the definition. Substrate that contributes either to the burning or growth of an organism. Now, that's a fine definition. I have no problem with that definition. Burning or growth. So, let's take burning. If you take fat or protein or carbohydrate and you explode it in a bomb calorimeter, a little device that basically measures the heat production when something's exploded, you get nine calories per gram for fat, four calories per gram for protein, four calories per gram for carbohydrate. So you would say, well, then food contributes to burning. But that's actually not true because we are not bomb calorimeters. We don't explode our food, we metabolize our food. And we metabolize our food in an organelle, in a subcellular organ in each of our cells, called the mitochondria. Mitochondria are little energy-burning factories inside each cell. And mitochondria have their own DNA. So mitochondria are actually refurbished bacteria. We made a pact, you know, trillions of years ago, where we basically housed these bacteria and they did our burning for us. We are in symbiosis with these bacteria, which we now call mitochondria. Now, mitochondria's job is to make ATP, adenosine triphosphate. This is the chemical energy that the cell uses to power all of its functions. No ATP, you're dead. It's that simple. You want your mitochondria to be efficient. You want them to be able to burn to completion. You want them to be able to take glucose and bring it all the way down to carbon dioxide, eliciting 32 ATP in the process. That's what you want. And when your mitochondria are working, then that would be food that powered that. Glucose, for lack of a better word, is food because it contributes to burning. But what if a substrate does not contribute to burning? What if it actually inhibits burning? Well, it turns out that the molecule fructose, 
which is one half of dietary sugar, which is sucrose, glucose fructose, or high fructose corn syrup, glucose fructose, or honey maple syrup agave, doesn't matter, they're all the same. One glucose, one fructose. Turns out that fructose molecule does not burn in mitochondria to completion. Turns out it in, actually inhibits three, count them, three separate enzymes that are necessary for normal mitochondria to function. It inhibits an enzyme called AMP kinase, which is the fuel gauge on the liver cell. It inhibits ACADL, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, the first step on the way to fatty acid oxidation. And finally, it inhibits carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is the enzyme that regenerates carnitine, which is the shuttle mechanism by which the fats get into the mitochondria for burning in the first place. Bottom line, fructose and thereby proxy processed food, because pretty much all processed food has sugar added, actually inhibits burning. So if it's inhibiting burning, is it a food? Well, now we have to go to growth. Remember, it's growth or burning. So let's go to growth. Because fruit is fructose. Well, right? Fruit, yes. honey. So fruit has fructose in it, without question, but it also has fiber. And fiber actually inhibits fructose absorption. So it never gets to your mitochondria. So when you consume a piece of fruit, the fructose in that fruit was blocked from being absorbed by the fiber, which forms a gel on the inside of your intestine, acts as a secondary barrier. And so what happens is instead of you absorbing it, and therefore it inhibiting your mitochondria, what happens is it goes further down the intestine where the microbiome chew it up for its purposes instead. So even though you consumed it, you didn't actually get it. Instead of feeding you, you fed your bacteria. Now, when you take that fruit and you juice it and you get rid of the fiber, now you absorb it just like you would a soda, and now you've overwhelmed your liver, and now you've inhibited mitochondrial function. And so now you've got poison. So just by juicing the fruit, you have turned it from food into poison. Okay, so turns out fruit is sort of the exception that proves the rule because fruit is medicine and fruit juice is poison. And the only difference between the two is the presence or absence of fiber, which is one of the big things in terms of how to get back to real food. Okay, now I'll ask you more about that because I'm I'm curious because fruit, it you can see that it raises blood sugar, even um, sure. if it contains all of the fiber. But I want to mm -hmm. hear about uh, growth. So you said right. burning or growth. So let's let's talk about growth. My colleague, Dr. Efrat Monsenigo Ornan, who is the head of nutrition at Hebrew University, Jerusalem, just published three papers in bone research, which showed that ultra-processed food, and specifically sugar, actually inhibit cortical bone formation, inhibit growth. And you can actually see the washed out bones on x-ray or on quantitative CT. And you can actually see the lack of cortical bone being laid down. And we also know from the Nutrinet Santé study and several other studies that fructose actually hijacks growth 
toward cancer cell progression. So instead of causing normal growth, it causes abnormal growth and it inhibits normal growth. So if a substrate does not contribute to burning and it does not contribute to growth and actually hijacks growth, is that a food? So in fact, ultra processed food is not food. And if it's not food, what is it? Then I guess it's poison. Now, it's going to be a long time before that, you know, sort of synthesis, that thesis that, that I just laid out for you is adopted by mainstream America or the world. And to be honest with you, the food industry is not going to go quietly. But they know they have a problem. They know that they are causing disease. And do you know how I know they know? Because two companies that you've heard of, Danone and Unilever, have just reevaluated their entire portfolio. And they've been able to reduce the sugar footprint in their entire portfolio by 14%. Now, if sugar were food, why would they do that? Can you talk to us about the, some of the manifestations of this processed food? So you're saying, you know, it's poison and you talked about the liver. You talked about if, you know, if it's not a food, then it doesn't make ATP and it also doesn't help us grow. What are some of the, the issues surrounding that and how is it showing up for the population? All right. So in my book, Metabolical, I talk about the eight subcellular pathologies that belie all chronic disease. Okay. And here they are. I'll just list them. There's no ICD-11 code for these. Doctors don't talk to their patients about them. And the reason is because there's no drug for any of them. But these are the processes that go on underneath, inside the cells that lead to chronic disease. One, glycation. Two, oxidative stress. Three, mitochondrial dysfunction. Four, insulin resistance. Five, membrane instability. Six, inflammation, seven, methylation, and eight, autophagy. Now, when these eight processes are working for you, you'll be 110 playing tennis. When these eight processes are working against you, you'll be 40 years old in a wheelchair with two stumps on dialysis waiting for your next stroke. And of course, everything in between. These eight processes, which in the book I call the hateful eight, are the underlying drivers of chronic disease. And these eight processes are all driven by ultra-processed food. Ultra-processed food makes all eight of these things worse, whereas real food makes all eight of these processes better. Now, people say to me, but what about exercise? Can't you exercise your way out of a bad diet? After all, exercise burns calories. Remember, it's not about calories. These processes have nothing to do with calories. And as it turns out, exercise will help four of those eight. It will not help glycation. It will not help oxidative stress. It will not help membrane instability, and it will not help methylation. So. Exercise is good. I'm for it. But you cannot 
outrun a bad diet. You cannot exercise your way out of this. We still have to fix the food supply. How do you define a processed food? Well, there are several ways. One way is if there are more than five ingredients on the label. Another way is by the way my colleague, Dr. Uh, Carlos Montero at the University of Sao Paulo uh, defines it. And he has different gradations of processed food. So he developed something called the Nova classification. So I'll give you an example. Let's take an apple. Class one would be an apple picked off the tree. Class two would be apple slices. So de-stemmed and potentially defibrotized. Class three would be apple sauce. So fiber macerated and possibly removed, possibly with added sugar. And class four would be an apple pie. All right. Turns out that class one, class two, and class three do not contribute to chronic disease. So we can have minimal processing in order to provide convenience and to increase shelf life and stability. But once we get to class four, that's where all the disease is. And it's been shown that it's Nova class four that drives chronic metabolic disease, in part because of inhibition of mitochondrial functioning, production of insulin resistance, de novo lipogenesis laying down a fat in places that shouldn't have it. Those are the processes that lead to chronic metabolic disease. So 90% of all of the items in the grocery store are made by 10%, made by 10 companies. And those 10 companies only make processed food. And processed food now accounts for 56% of all of the food available in America, and 62% of the sugar in food, and 67% of the sugar in kids' food. And that's why kids today get chronic metabolic disease, even though they're kids. And that's why children and adults have the same problem. How does one get insulin resistance? We know that insulin resistance leads to type 2 diabetes, which we That's thought right. was a disease for older adults, and now we're seeing in younger and younger people. Right. How does that happen? So in 2006, I was asked by the National Institutes of Health to come to a symposium and to talk about what I thought was the biggest driver of metabolic syndrome. And I thought to myself, what am I going to say? What, you know, is there a chemical in the environment like bisphenol A or, you know, is plasticizers or what, what am I going to talk about? I said, all right, let me go at this from the back end. I said, what are the two diseases that children now get that they never got before? And the answer was type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. These were the diseases of aging but now children get them. And more importantly, they were the diseases of alcohol. Alcoholics got type 2 diabetes. Alcoholics got fatty liver disease. But kids don't drink alcohol. So I said to myself, all right, is there something that children are exposed to that looks like alcohol? And so I opened up my biochemistry textbook from 1974, from when I took it in college, and I went to the page on alcohol, and right on the other side of the page was the answer. 
fructose, the sweet molecule in sugar. And it makes sense that that would be the case because after all, where do you get alcohol from? Fermentation of fructose, it's called wine. We do it in Napa and Sonoma every day. The big difference between alcohol and fructose is that for alcohol, the yeast does the first step in metabolism called glycolysis. For fructose, we do our own first step. But after that, what the mitochondria see, and remember, that's where the, uh, the action is, what the mitochondria see are exactly the same, whether it's alcohol or fructose. What they're seeing is an excess of acetyl-CoA that they can't handle because they have a limited capacity to metabolize it. The velocity on the tricarboxylic acid or Krebs cycle only can go so fast. So if you're pumping more substrate in than the, your mitochondria can handle, what does it do with the rest? It turns it into fat. And that fat then either exits the liver and becomes triglyceride, and now you've got risk for heart disease and obesity, or that fat won't make it out of the liver, it will precipitate as a lipid droplet. Now you've got fatty liver disease, and now you've got risk for type 2 diabetes as well. So bottom line, I went to this meeting in front of a whole bunch of toxicologists, and I said, I think that the problem is this compound called fructose. And here's why. And I gave my talk and I got applause and then came the bathroom break. And I'm talking to people at the dais, you know, and no one's coming back for the afternoon session. And so I need to use the bathroom. I go out and I get tackled in the lobby. Oh my God, oh my God, you're right, you're right. This makes so much sense. And these are the toxicologists, you know, they're going nuts. And I say, you have to tell everybody about this. And I've been telling everybody about it ever since. Right. So all those juice boxes that all the children get with their lunches exactly. is basically like giving them a glass of wine with each meal. Exactly right. Way less fun. <laughs> <laughs> so the bottom line is, it doesn't matter what the substrate is. It can be sugar or alcohol, or it can be fruit without the fiber. The bottom line is, if you overwhelm your liver, you're going to suffer the same metabolic problems. Right. Also, things like processed crackers, puffs, right. things Tr like that has become a staple in children's diet. And Absolutely. So they had that's trans That's basically fats. lacking fiber as well. Lacking fiber. And also, they had trans fats. All baked goods in America had trans fats until just very recently. Right. Right. Turns out trans fats lay down fat in the liver and fat in your arteries as well, because they can't be metabolized by the mitochondria. So they end up the, with the same fate. So the bottom line is ultra processed food is the vehicle. And when you switch from ultra processed food to real food, all of these processes get better. And we've shown that. We've shown that you can actually reverse metabolic syndrome in 10 days just by getting sugar wow. out of kids' diets. We actually just got an email from a client today who had been suffering from type 2 diabetes. And after 10 days, exactly, went off all their medications, like with their doctor's help, but um, was on his second week of Sakara off all medications. You know, I'm for Sakara in the sense that I'm for anything that's real food. 
Mm-hmm. There are many ways to skin this cat, yeah. but there's one way to kill the cat, mm. and it's processed food. Yeah, well said. And what about autoimmune conditions? Right. Do you look into autoimmune conditions and where food plays a role? So what I've learned, remember those eight bad guys, the hateful eight? Number six was inflammation. Now, inflammation makes your liver do weird things. Inflammation drives insulin resistance. And everyone is inflamed now. The question is why? Turns out almost all that inflammation is coming from the gut. The gut is supposed to be outside your body. We learn in medical school that the gut is outside your body. It's inside your body geographically, but it's outside your body physiologically. Because your gut is supposed to provide a barrier. It's only supposed to let nutrients through to end up, you know, going through your bloodstream to whatever organ it needs to go to. And that the gut's supposed to be selective. Now, in order for the gut to function as a barrier, you have junctions between the intestinal epithelial cells that hold the gut together. And they have a name, they're called tight junctions. Okay, and the proteins that drive these tight junctions are called zonulins. And this is what's defective in celiac disease. Now, when these junctions are working, then the gut presents a full rational barrier. But if something happens to those tight junctions and they become dysfunctional, either permanently or transiently, then what happens is that the gut can't hold together and that pores open up between the cells and stuff can get from the intestinal lumen into the bloodstream. Bad stuff like cytokines, lipopolysaccharides, whole bacteria, which you can measure. That is a process which we call leaky gut. So you can poison the tight junctions or you can strip the mucin layer off the top of the intestinal epithelial cells. Either way, you end up causing leaky gut. Now, it turns out you have to feed the bacteria in your gut or your bacteria will feed on you. So if you don't feed your bacteria and the thing that your bacteria eat is fiber, then what will happen is the intestinal bacteria will chew the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells thus exposing them and creating that leaky gut. If you poison the tight junctions and the thing that poisons them are things like gluten in people who are susceptible and fructose. Fructose poisons those tight junctions transiently because it inhibits ATP and those tight junctions need ATP to function. So when the intestinal cell is depleted of ATP because it's metabolizing all this fructose, you get transient breakdown of that intestinal barrier and you end up with stuff going across. And so things like lipopolysaccharides that are inflammatory, that will give you irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease. Proteins that are not fully digested will make it across. And now you've got autoimmune disease or food allergy because you're immune system is now being exposed to something it shouldn't have seen. So we have data that shows that if you take the sugar 
out of the diet of people, say, with lupus, one of the autoimmune diseases that's made worse by sugar, okay, the degree of severity of the lupus goes way down. So there are lots of reasons to basically want to protect, you know, but to feed your gut and keep the toxins out in order to prevent inflammation, which will then foment autoimmune disease, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, food allergy, etc. Today, I am very excited to tell you about our Super Bar collection. We recently updated our cult favorites, Detox, Beauty, and Energy Super Bars that you all know and love to ensure that we're continuing to deliver on our commitment to providing you with the best tasting and most nutritious products on the market. These are the perfect on-the-go snack and ensure you don't have to sacrifice quality for convenience. All of these newly formulated bars focus on stabilizing your blood sugar, which, as you know, because you listen to the Sakara Life podcast, is at the core of metabolic health. We have increased the protein in each bar, so it now contains 12 grams. Each bar has 40% of your fiber, which is really important for your microbiome. The sugar has been cut in half, also a part of stabilizing your blood sugar. We have new functional ingredients, things like sea buckthorn oil that have omega-7. They're all USDA certified, no added chemicals, toxins, etc. as always. So our collection has energy. Energy bar is really delicious. It's kind of like this uh, Mexican hot cocoa. It's like chocolate, but it has cinnamon. It contains adaptogenic mushrooms to increase energy and lower cortisol. Our Beauty bars are probably have the biggest change. They went from like a strawberry kind of burst to now these ones are lemon, citrus, and poppy seed. They are so juicy and delicious. Contain sea buckthorn oil, as I was talking about earlier, enhances collagen production and hydrates the skin. And our detox bar, which I'm allowed to have a favorite, I'd say is my favorite. It has blue spirulina that supports the detox pathways in the body and has sesame seeds, which not only add a really delicious texture to the bar, which is blue, by the way, but also contains added calcium and vitamin E, etc. So check out the new super bars. And when you get to the website and you check out, type in podcast 15 for 15% off your purchase. talking a lot about food and the correlation to autoimmune, which there is, there are so many studies behind. What about other environmental factors and autoimmune issues? So there are several factors in our environment that bind to receptors in our bodies inappropriately. You know, they're not supposed to, but they're chemicals that bind to receptors that ultimately alter homeostasis. A group of 44 colleagues and I just published two weeks ago three papers in the journal Biochemical Pharmacology on environmental obesogens, compounds, chemicals in our environment that actually drive adiposity and drive metabolic dysfunction unrelated to calories. So, some of them 
are things that are ubiquitous, like air pollution, particulate matter in the air. Some of them are things that are found in food, like for instance, fructose and some of the packagings and some of the um, preservatives. Some of them are found in some of the plastics that we use, such as bisphenol A and phthalates, which are plasticizers that are used in baby bottles and, and nipples. Some of them are heavy metals like cadmium and arsenic that are found in certain foods like cocoa. So there are various things that we are exposed to that lead to metabolic dysfunction because they bind to receptors and act as endocrine disruptors. And many of those cause fat to be laid down. Therefore, they are environmental obesogens. And they're very hard to get rid of. Oh, another one that I forgot about was Teflon, perfluorooctanoic acid. So you notice Teflon's gone now. But boy, oh boy, it was around with us for 45 years. It's done a lot of damage and it's a forever chemical and it's not just gone. I mean, it's still around. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, it just makes me laugh because sometimes I think I'm crazy, but then I have all these amazing guests like you on the podcast that just confirm that I'm not crazy for doing something like bringing my own pans when I travel because you go to these Airbnbs and what do they have? They have like the cheap pans that are Teflon and scratched off and you know that's going into your food. So well, indeed, but it's not just that. I mean, the fact is, you know, this stuff is everywhere. Yeah, restaurants. If you remember 1962, Rachel Carson the founder of the environmental movement, wrote the famous book, Silent Spring. And what was that about? That was about DDT. Well, DDT worked as an insecticide because it was an estrogen and that it disrupted the life cycle of the insect. So it was a great insecticide, but the problem was it bound to our estrogen receptors and caused cancer. Well, DDT was banned in 1972. 50 years ago this year, but we can measure the metabolite of DDT called DDE in the urine of pregnant women today. And it turns out that the degree of DDE in their urine predicts adiposity in their offspring at age three years. You find yourself feeling like, how do you feel knowing all of this? Do you feel sad? Do you feel hopeful? Like, how does it make you feel? Well, I think it makes me feel mostly angry. And it makes me angry not because the food industry or the chemical industry did these things. It's their job. But it's the environmental protection agencies and the Food and Drug Administrations and the U.S. Department of Agriculture's agent, uh, uh, administration. It's their job to protect us from them. Yeah. And they haven't. And so that makes me a little angry. On the other mm -hmm. hand, I am hopeful. And the reason I'm hopeful is because we are teaching the children and the children are growing up and they are voting. And this problem will get better. This problem will go away. But it's going to be a generational shift. It's going to take a while. Yeah, I I have two small children and it's so hard. It's like, Every single meal, they're exposed to things out in the world that like I can't always control. And so 
when we're home, they'll crave things that like I've never exposed them to. And we live a very privileged life in terms of they go to, you know, a, a very good school. And still, still, I have to get on the administration and say, no, you cannot serve this to children. No, this is not okay. And so it just breaks my heart. I mean, we work with a nonprofit called Wellness in the Schools. So we help educate kids about nutrition, about what to eat, what not to eat, how to cook, how to get in the kitchen with your family, because their families aren't teaching them because their families didn't teach them that. And so it's just like, how do you break this cycle? But I am I am hopeful also. So I am the chief medical officer and co-founder of a nonprofit of our own called Eat Real. And our job is to get real food into K-12 schools across the country. Because you can teach kids, but then if they go home and the parents are doing something else, it almost doesn't even matter. So kids have to become the positive disruptive force in their homes. So how do you do that? Well, we teach kids how to cook in school in fourth grade, 10 years old. They have now, now they have knife skills and they can actually cook. So when the kid goes with the parent to the grocery store and they get to the produce aisle and the kid says, hey, there's an artichoke. Can we have that for dinner? And the mom says, well, I don't know how to make an artichoke. The kid says, yeah, but I do. <laughs> and the kid mm -hmm. becomes a positive disruptive force within the home in order to be able to make the wholesale changes that need to happen. As long as you only provide education, you can't solve the problem. You have to be able to provide agency. You have to be able to provide self-efficacy. You have to be able to provide implementation. And that's yet another level of, uh, of education that has to be provided. And so we're doing that in the schools here in the, uh, in the Bay Area and also in several districts around the country, three states now. That's amazing. Talk to us about what it means to be a pediatric endocrine, what is it, a pediatric neuroendocrinologist? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is that? So I'm interested, I've always been interested since seventh grade, I did a term paper on the hypothalamus, okay? And that was when the hypothalamus was first discovered as the source of the releasing factors that made the pituitary work. Guillemin and Shally won the Nobel Prize for this. I remember 1968. And I was in you know seventh grade at the time. And so I did a term paper on the hypothalamus. And that changed my life and made me want to be a neuroendocrinologist. And I followed through. What can I say? But I was always interested in how the brain controlled hormones and how hormones controlled the brain. So behavior, as you know, is hormonally driven. If you have a pubertal age child, you will know that. <laughs> if you ever went through puberty yourself, you will know that. And so I ended up switching my interests to obesity when we discovered in 1994, a hormone called leptin. Now leptin is a hormone that's made by fat cells, travels via the bloodstream, goes to the brain and tells the brain, hey, you know what? I've eaten enough. I have enough energy on board to engage in puberty and pregnancy and normal metabolism, and I don't need to eat so much. Well, it was very clear that leptin wasn't working because if leptin was working, 
we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic. And so I turned my interest to trying to understand what the cause of leptin dysfunction was. And it turned out, you know, through you know, years of research, turned out to be the hormone insulin. Insulin blocks leptin. So insulin is the energy storage hormone. Insulin makes fat. More insulin, more fat. Well, insulin also blocks leptin at the brain. So insulin makes you hungrier. So you now have a vicious cycle of laying down a fat consumption and metabolic disease. And all of these patients had insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. So the question was, what's causing that? And I told you the story of 2007, when I went and said, I think sugar is the cause. Well, here we are. We're 15 years later, and all the data is lined up very, very nicely. And people are starting to understand it. And now the food industry is starting to understand it. So I'm actually very proud of the work that we've been able to do and the ability to take it forward into policy. And I have a question that might be somewhat controversial to some minds out there, but what about antibiotics? Do you think that antibiotics play a role in obesity and some of these yep. autoimmune conditions? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And there's no doubt that antibiotics do play a role. It has shown that the more bouts of antibiotics that a baby gets, the more likely they are to be obese later. And the reason is because the bacterial flora of your gut matter. There are good bacteria and there are bad bacteria. There are bacteria that basically help you achieve normal metabolism, and there are bacteria that actually drive abnormal metabolism. In the parlance of the uh, microbiome people, there's bacteroides and there's firmicutus, two different genuses of bacteria. Turns out antibiotics kill off the bacteria in your gut at the same time they're killing off whatever bug you're trying to rid yourself of, whether it's an ear infection or meningitis or pneumonia or whatever else. And so those bacteria sometimes come back and sometimes they don't. And if they don't come back, then the bad bacteria, which are not affected by those antibiotics, basically take up residence and move in and sort of take over. And they can then generate abnormal dysfunctional metabolism and insulin resistance, thus driving obesity and chronic disease. So antibiotics do play a role. And the question is, what are we going to do about that? And that's a tough one because, you know, we still need antibiotics, but for every kid that gets antibiotics that needs them, four kids get antibiotics that don't because they had a virus and they didn't need the antibiotic. So we have to retrain physicians as to how to utilize antibiotics appropriately so that you don't end up with problems later on. Love that. If someone has an autoimmune condition, let's take like type 1 diabetes, is that reversible if we're fixing no. the gut okay, so, junctions? So the, the short answer is that autoimmunity is not fixable. Once you are 
once your immune system has been sensitized to an antigen that it's not supposed to have seen, that clone of cells is not going away. It will be there. So you can't get rid of it. But what you can do is you can modulate it. You can modulate its severity. And often the way to modulate it is by preventing that antigen from crossing the intestinal barrier to stimulate that clone of cells. In other words, you have to improve your gut barrier. You have to improve your skin barrier. You have to improve all of your, your, your lung barrier in order to keep the antigen away from your immune system. That you can do, and you can do that with real food. Well, that's inspiring to hear. And I think I read somewhere it's 15% of Americans have an autoimmune condition. I mean, we saw what happened at the Oscars and know that, that um, Jada Pickett-Smith has alopecia, which is an autoimmune condition. Correct. So many people with Hashimoto's and Crohn's, colitis, lupus, MS. And so I think hearing this is inspiring for people who have those conditions. So it's very hard to do randomized controlled trials in this field. Understand that. But we have a lot of case history data and a lot of cohort data and certainly a lot of anecdotal data. My God, we have more anecdotal data than we know what to do with. That shows that if you get refined carbohydrate and sugar out of your diet, your autoimmune disease will become much less severe. It will improve markedly. It may not go away, but it will get better. I was just going to ask you, it's really interesting that you study hormones and the brain and that now you're here talking about, about sugar. Can you talk about some of the addictive qualities? Like what makes sweet things addictive? So people think sugar is love. No, sugar is a drug. Okay. It has all the components, all the effects of a standard drug of abuse. So nicotine, alcohol, heroin, cocaine. These are all compounds that stimulate an area of our brain called the nucleus accumbens, the reward center, and provides transient reward. Sugar does too. Now, sugar also has calories. Sugar also leads to adipose tissue deposition. The others don't. Sugar because it raises insulin, and insulin blocks leptin signaling, leptin is the thing that extinguishes that reward signal. So not only do you have a vicious cycle of consumption and disease, but you also have a vicious cycle of consumption, hyperinsulinemia, leptin resistance, and addiction. And so we actually have the data now to show that sugar is addictive. Now, it's not addictive in everyone, in the same way alcohol is not addictive in everyone. So in America, 40% are teetotalers, don't touch the stuff. 40% are social drinkers, can pick up a beer, put it down. I'm in that category. 20% have a problem. 10% are binge drinkers, and 10% are 
are hardcore alcoholics. Based on the evidence, based on the data that exists from large surveys, I think that it's about the same for sugar. We have social sugar consumers, and we also have binge consumers, and we also have sugar addicts. And we sort of know that there are sugar addicts because they tell you so. Oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth. That's sugar addiction until proven otherwise. The reason they tell you that is because it's so socially acceptable to be so. And in fact, invariably, they're looking for a co-enabler to join with them. So we actually have the data to demonstrate biochemically, physiologically, and neuroimaging-wise that sugar is addictive. And we also, by the way, have an economic determinant of addiction too. It's called price elasticity. So for those of you who are not versed in economics, price elasticity is how will consumption change when the price of a commodity goes up 1%? Now, if something's price elastic, then the consumption will go down 1%. But if something's price inelastic, then the consumption will stay up. And that's a sign of addiction. You will pay any price to get your fix. And it turns out that of food, the three most price inelastic items are fast food, soda, and juice, all high sugar containing. So we have epidemiologic, we have economic, we have physiologic, and we have neuroimaging data, all supporting the contention that sugar is addictive. And we now have data on withdrawal as well. I think this can sound scary and it honestly is, but I think at the end of the day, what you're saying is that it doesn't have to be hard. You have to just focus on eating real food. If you eat real food, that means you're eating a low sugar, high fiber diet. And you are protecting your liver and you are feeding your gut. And all real food is healthy because all real food protects your liver and feeds your gut. Whereas all processed food floods your liver and starves your gut. Mm. So processed food is the problem. Real food is the solution. I salute Sakara for understanding that and for providing real food for its patron, you know, for its clients. But the bottom line is, Sakara is a high-end item. Okay, people who are vulnerable need mm -hmm. real food also. And the problem is they can't get it. They don't have access. They don't have availability and they don't have access. And that is what has to be fixed. That's why we need a new food business model. And the food industry should be rewarded for doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. Yeah, we could not agree with you more. And that's why it's our service mission to help the next generation understand that and really give them the toolkit similar to what you the work that you do with your nonprofit give them the tools to create their health and vitality not just exactly. the information i think this is a great place to go to light work so dr lustig do you have some light work for all of us and all the listeners so here's what i would say it's the first sentence of my book 
You find a wasp in your attic. What are you going to do? Kill the wasp or destroy the wasp's nest? You have to look upstream of a problem in order to solve a problem. Working downstream of a problem only fix the result. You haven't fixed the cause. In medicine today, we're fixing downstream problems. We're not fixing causes. The disease is still there. It's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Might help the headache, won't do a damn thing for the brain tumor. So my light work for your audience is to pick a problem that they themselves have or that some family member has. And instead of focusing on what they are currently doing to try to solve that problem, what they need to do is think about what is the upstream cause of that problem and direct their attention to that. It's much harder, but it will be much more satisfying in the end. Well, thank you so much for your time and your work that you do and helping to get that word out. Um, hopefully, you know, all of us together, we can make a real change and see a different future, a healthier future for our country and for the world. So thank you. Real food for everyone. <laughs> Indeed. Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara, And so we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experience through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food, plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition, which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy. It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program, head to sakara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation. So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Sakara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body. And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world. Thank you.